anybody from going anywhere. It actually made, <laughs> it made uh, trade more profitable, specifically around that wall because of um, smuggling. So people would go there to make more money, and the idea was like, we're gonna keep everybody apart instead. They just mixed like crazy. That's what we see from the wildlings and the uh, northerners, yeah. especially the, uh, the county that it's from. It's Northumberland, I think that's where Hadrian's Wall is. 
Umber's on the south, the Wild Room's on the north. George Same R. R. Martin thing. actually went to Scotland yeah. um, when he was in the process of writing, and he stood where Hadrian's Wall kind of used to be because it's basically a pile of rocks now. They tore down most of it to make churches, and, and so all of the smaller buildings that are in that area are now made from the rocks that once was Hadrian's Wall. But he stood sort of where it would have been and, and looked across and watched the sun go down, and he tried to imagine what, what that must be like this beyond these strange Scottish people, warriors <laughs> that wore skirts. And you can really see that moment in A Game of Thrones when John and Tyrion are atop the wall, and they're looking into that dark forest, and they're just like, anything could be alive in there. And all of a sudden, Tyrion even thinks to himself, all my little jokes about Grumpkins aren't that funny anymore. And he's like looking out there like, ooh, I could almost believe those stories about the other. So you can see that moment was written right into the story, so that's great. Yeah. Speaking of Scotland, um, the Black Dinner and the Glencoe Massacre. Oh. What's that? The Red Wedding. It certainly is. Um, it's, there were two real-life, real-world historical events where a family was brought into a house under false pretenses and then massacred. Um, but it was the Black Dinner and the Glencoe Massacre and George kind of combined these two horrifying events which then became what we all know is the Red Wedding. I actually, that's one that I have heard a little bit about, but I don't, I don't know any more than what you just said, so if Joe wants to comment. I know nothing. Otherwise, I can go ahead and fill us in, Joe. I know nothing. Well, I pretty much just summarized it, to be quite honest. Shall we move into some literature? Let's. Literature. Lord of the Rings, anyone? Lord yeah, that, of the was a, that was a fun panel. There's quite a lot of Lord of the Rings in there. Um, specifically, if you look at the Valyrians, the connections we can and Sauron are explicit. They have the dragons, they have the fireworms underneath, like Glaurung, the original dragon that Morgoth. They both have very good taste in clothing. They do. You got, they have the slavery aspect that Morgoth and Sauron are so famous for, but then you get them pulled into George's world, and instead you're presented with Daenerys, who you're supposed to have empathy for and sympathy for, and she's one of the heroines. It's like, but if you read that from Tolkien aspect, it's like, isn't she supposed to be a villain based on what we're looking at? It's a very fascinating one. He does that too with um, with the Starks. Specifically, they're very close in terms of how they described, like with their dire wolves and their the Kings of Winter with the Witch King of Angmar. And again, that's, that's a huge villain, though, the head of the ring race. But again, yeah, we're the, rooting for them. The Starks have the Black Iron Crown with nine spikes, yeah. just like they have nine ring races. Yeah. And when uh, Ned goes to the Tower of Joy, he describes his other men with him as his wraiths. Yeah, great so, wraiths. Shadow swords. Yeah. Just more ring race stuff. And that's actually uh, a good jumping off into the broader point of this is. Um, uh, oh God, I lost my thought. Does anyone know what Frodo Baggins' father's called? Oh yeah. Anyone? Drogo Baggins. <laughs> <laughs> And then, um, I love this stuff. I just love this stuff. You know, when it, and like I said, if you don't know the reference, it's fine. You, you're enjoying the story. But if you do, you're. Okay, so I, I remember what you I was going to say. So it's all about context. See, the, the idea is that what George is doing by referencing external ideas is he's, he's sort of hiding more context for the story in there. So you can read the story without that context and enjoy it. But if you pick up on, for example, the similarities between the Valerians and Sauron and his, folk, and his folks, then it sort of, it creates a more of a context for the, the Targaryen experience. You can see that they are... They feel evil, right? They feel evil right off the bat, and then George is cutting against that with somebody like Daenerys. And so that extra context, when you understand it, it sort of just deepens the, the richness of the experience. Because Martin is standing on the shoulders of giants. I mean, that's the simplest way to put it. He's not reinventing the wheel by any means. And so when you, when he's basically encouraging us to follow all of these influences, whether it be mythology or Lord of the Rings or English history, and by doing so, we learn a lot. And every podcaster that I've talked to has, has the same feeling that I do, which is that my life has been experienced, and I've learned so much just by researching and following all these loose threads. I didn't know crap about nature cycle mythology three years ago. <laughs> I honestly didn't. Did and, a panel yesterday. And I did a panel yesterday about it. And hopefully I didn't offend any Wiccans, but... Um, so that's, that's kind of the point. Like, it's not just, oh, look, these are fun references. Martin is, is very much intends his story to be viewed in context of everybody that's come before and everyone that's come after. And I think he feels like he's carrying the torch that 
Tolkien and others carried, I think he takes it real seriously. What's, uh, there's a famous quote, I'll paraphrase it, I can't remember it exactly, but it, it basically goes that if you um, steal from one person, that's plagiarism. If you steal from a multiple of sources, yeah. that's genius and inspiration. He's yeah. <laughs> stolen quite a lot. It has, it has, but like, like um, LML said, it's, 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 it prompts you to then go look into this further. I mean, I've read um, The Wheel of Time and a lot of H.P. Lovecraft because I've launched from The Song of Ice and Fire to do that. I need to know more about this Yellow Emperor, Robert Chambers, for example. And, 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 and like I said, it's, it's broadened my horizons. I know so much random crap now. <laughs> I mean, I know all about um, the incest in the royal family of Britain, for example. And that's yeah. greatly enriched your life. It, yeah, well, and, and weirded me out a bit. But and yeah, weirded yeah. you out a bit because you're somewhat normal right there in the front. Um, on this similar topic, I just recently heard that Hawking didn't finish his work, but he was his son. What would happen if George died? <laughs> <laughs> He has said that, that nobody, whatever he writes is what he writes. So the people keep suggesting, uh, what was his name? Yeah. Wheel of Time. Sanderson. Brandon Sanderson. 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 Yeah. People always ask him if Sanderson's going to do it. Sanderson I think this finished the first book. <laughs> he never got through it. I nominate this panel. <laughs> it would have to be a team effort. There's going to be work. so many meteors if that happens. There's going to be meteors all the time. Honestly, I just have to say that I have a real good feeling we'll definitely see the end of the series. I, don't, uh, I just don't think anyone needs to worry about that. I just want to say um, about how it feels like sort of patchwork things because before George R. R. Martin started writing um, a Game of Thrones, he was a sci-fi writer. He was a sci-fi horror writer. Game of Thrones came to him while he was writing Avalon, rest in peace, that we'll never, never see in sci-fi book. And he got this idea in his head of Bran finding the direwolves, that whole scene from Game of Thrones 1. So this really is a love letter to everything he grew up with. This was not his job. This is the one he actually loves the most. This is his life's work, yeah. isn't it? Quite literally, this is, and 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 the passion. And, and the thing is, if it takes us three years to research one of the things that he's put into his texts, how long do you think it takes him to research and to go over these points and pull all this history, mythology, literature? It, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. Speaking of H.P. Lovecraft, that's one of my favourite House Greyjoy. That's one of my favourite nods. Um, I've got the quote, that is, that is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange eons even death may die. And that's not George R. R. Martin. That's H.P. Lovecraft. And made it a bit more readable. He did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've started recently listening to a little uh, Lovecraft on audiobooks, and some of it is more challenging than others, but... It really it, sounds like Tolkien, doesn't it? But, like, much darker. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And I, I like that style of writing. I don't, I don't find it hard to read, but... Um, there's actually... Uh, I recently read The Doom That Came to Sarnath, which is one that uh, George has drawn from a lot. A lot, yeah. Uh, and there's actually... A, and I won't go into the whole Moon Meteors thing, but probably half of you in the crowd know my Moon Meteors theory. <laughs> there is a... Yeah, drink. Um, there, there is a scene in The Doom That Came to Sarnath where very strange monsters come from the moon. And it sounds like the Carthian myth. I mean, my god, it sounds like it. These strange th beings come down from the moon one auspicious night after all the people have sinned and defied the old gods. And the next day, like, everyone's dead and gone, and the city's obliterated, and it's just a big swamp. And uh, they're kind of like squisher beings, but they come down from the moon, so, you know. Also, almost all of Essos is basically other stories. Especially the Azor Ahai myths. Um, every name for him, except for Azor Ahai, I think comes from another book, doesn't it? So yeah, Eldrick Shadow Chaser and... Um, uh, Eurothon Nightwalker? Uh, yeah, I was thinking of... One uh, Harkoon. Harkoon, Harkoon from the Hero is yeah. also from the Eldrick of Melnibony mm -hmm. series, yeah. He does that quite a lot. Westeros is full of them too, but Essos, because he doesn't have to write a narrative around there, because that's sort of his fake history. It's, he goes off the wall for references. Yeah, he's got Kokos and Kadath's right on, yeah. the, on the east, mm -hmm. past Ashai and, and all of that. And, and if I could say something about Lovecraft, I think what George R. Martin is making a statement about Lovecraft by borrowing from Lovecraft the same way that all fantasy authors borrow from Tolkien. Yeah. He's basically saying that Lovecraft's monsters, like the idea of a deep one, is now like an elf or an orc. And it's a universal fantasy idea that other people can now use because Lovecraft has entered the status of you know, the pantheon of, of 
whatever, and obviously Lovecraft is problematic, that must be said. But his writing is, uh, you know, it's now, George is basically saying that other people can use these monsters in the same way that everyone uses Tolkien's monsters. And that's, Tolkien basically invented fantasy by regurgitating Norse myth in his way. Invented okay. orcs too. Um, okay, what have we got next? Um, ancient culture, the old empire of Greece, uh, Mesopotamia, marine Astapon Yokai, Egypt, pyramids, um, and the Valerian Freehold is very similar to the Roman Empire. Um, I don't know if Merged with Nazi Germany. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Valerian, Aryan, yes. just make sure everyone's yeah. hip to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's intentional. The, um, I don't know if anybody's seen the maps where they get England and they kind of flip it, <laughs> and then they paint the regions and they say, oh, house, uh, like the Tyrell, the, the um, High Garden, that's France. Mm -hmm. And then they try to tribute yes. Northern Italy, Wall is Scotland. Dorn is like Spain, yeah. Moorish, you know, yeah. Algeria. There's, yeah. a, there's a point um, between England and Ireland, it's called the Giant's Causeway, yes, and right where if you match them up on either side of both islands, that's basically where the neck is. You just like smash them yeah. together. Yeah, like I visited that. there, that's yeah, where they cool. film the Iron Islands. It's yeah. Really yeah, and if you guys were writing your own fantasy novels, don't make it too hard, man. Just cut up parts of maps and <laughs> <laughs> all a day, write a good story. It's all about the heart of conflict characters, right? Go ahead. Um, Greek mythology. I mean, wow. We could do a five-hour panel on that. Yeah, time. Greek and Norse. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got the Norse mythology. I mean, we've discussed Hadrian's Wall. Um, Norse mythology, the Bifrost. Yeah. You know, that's that's an obvious one. But the, the Ragnarok tale in general, Ice and Fire. You guys that watch the Marvel movies might have noticed Suter with Lightbringer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, wildfire. Robert's Rebellion, the Trojan War. Greek fire. I mean, there was also called yeah. Saint Elmo's fire, actually. <laughs> Interestingly. Yeah, I kid you not. Go ahead. Um, Robert's Rebellion. Can you discuss how? I mean, there was no Trojan horse, was there? How how is Robert's Rebellion like the Trojan War? Oh, I haven't thought about that. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, this anybody is, by the way, if anybody has, yeah. Um, Lannister man. Um, Yes, Tywin. Tywin coming in as a friend. Opening the gates. Yes, that was the Trojan horse. Yeah. yeah. And how, how, how did it start? The Helen. Trojan War. Helen, Helen, Helen of Troy. Rebound the honor of Rhaegar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you got it. That's easier to see. Yeah. 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 There are some Trojan War references uh, with Daenerys uh, because when uh, Euron launches the fleet of a thousand ships or a hundred ships, it's very like. Uh, uh, when Helen was abducted, it was she's called the face that launched a thousand ships because when she was abducted, uh, I don't know who's her husband. Thank you. Launched a thousand ships to invade uh, Troy. So there's some references there too. And then we've got um, Stannis and Shireen. That all brings that's the this like I said Greek mythology in particular. And Circe, there is um, a goddess called Circe who lives in a forest surrounded by docile lions and wolves. And she involves, she tricks them and lulls them to sleep with her she magic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, There's some good stuff there. Um, how about Arthurian legend? So Arthurian legend, okay, so this is a great example of a broader point that I wanted to jump out to, which is a lot of people ask me, how does George combine so many things? Or how do you know that he's referencing this or that or this or that? And so, and, you know, how does he do it? How does this process work? Well, I've kind of—I think I've figured out how this must work. Right? So, at some point, George decides I want to have a flaming sword in my story, and when he does that, he's not—he's going to basically research all the flaming and shining swords in world mythology, and he's going to hat tip to all of them out of respect. And so, there's Arthurian Excalibur. There is the flaming sword in the Garden of Eden. There's Suter's flaming sword. There's the red lightsaber of Darth Vader. All of that plays in. Uh, Thundar uh, is a famous Hanna-Barbera comic. He has a sun sword which glows, and um, that happens right after a red comet comes by and messes up the moon and stuff. So, like, this is how it works. Like, when he sets out to do a flaming sword, he just sits back and like, all right, well, who's done that? And let's let's sort of pull from each and whatever works for him, and then that becomes his whole deal. So, like, instead of um, King Arthur being the main character, now he's Arthur Dane, who's like an adjunct. So it's like a little bit of a flip, but it's, you know, it's right there, so. Yeah, I mean, the whole Tower of Joy scenario comes straight from Arthurian legend. Um, Rhaegar and Lyanna are akin to Uther and Igraine, and their son was King Arthur. So Lyanna and Rhaegar's son being John. But then we've got Arthur Dane, we have an actual Arthur in the Song of Ice and Fire, who is Lancelot. 
his final resting place being the Joyous Guard, which means Tower of Joy. That's right, and the founder of House Hightower was Uthor yes. Hightower, just like Uthor Pendragon. Yes. And there's the rumors are that he slew dragons that were roosting on Hightower. And this is where a lot of those bizarre Arthur Dane being Jon Snow's father theories come from. It's not something I prescribe to, but... You can see Martin playing with those yes. expectations, though. Yes. Yeah. He's also put a, a King Arthur directly in the story. He's referenced that Rob Stark is supposed to be very similar to King Arthur because he wanted to see Arthur from his mother's perspective. So that's why we get Catalan's uh, POV looking at Rob. That, that was his whole thing. He's like, it's always boring seeing inside the mind of the conqueror. You want to see how everyone else is looking at them, yes. especially someone that doesn't see them as the conqueror, someone that sees them as their son. Or just a kid. That's cool. By the way, just if anybody has, we're moving from topic to topic real quick, so if anybody has a little thing they want to pipe in while we're talking about that thing, feel free to stick your hand up. I'm just mad at George for saying that still because has he not read Mists of Avalon? Because it's all about the women of King Arthur. And he it might came not. out like a long time ago. It's possible he has. He I just, could be a little bit of a blind spot. I'm like, okay, so you know, like, weird, obscure Chinese myths, but you can't look up, like, one of the most famous women written books about King Arthur? Okay. Fair point, fair point. He's very busy with his movie theater. Next one. Okay, yeah, so I would like to bring up separate, uh, a new thing that makes George R. R. Martin a great writer. This is actually one of those things, oh, right in the back. I'm sorry, I just wanted to backtrack for one second. You had sure. mentioned the sword in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. I was wondering if you had any other biblical references, because as I read the, as I read the books, I just, there's so many, like... George was raised Catholic, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's all over the place. There's a lot of baptisms. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's some... <laughs> Uh, not crucifixions, but there's some, some a lot of there sacrificial killings. Uh, what's that? There are crucifixions. Yeah. Uh, oh, I guess yeah. there are. Yeah. Oh, that's true. 163 slavers. But even yeah. some of the even some of the phrases that he uses, they're just mm. almost verbatim out of the Bible. So, yes. um, you know, I, even like reading the annotated version, sometimes it says like, you know, this is, you know, this refers to psalms whatever so i think that's interesting that he that he kind of touches upon that a little bit i don't know if you so one of my favorite things that he incorporates is the garden of eden and specifically he's aware of an alternate reading of the garden of eden that comes from the cathars of france and this is kind of a gnostic way of looking at it so lucifer means light bringer right so the whole the snake in the garden the, that tree that he was, the fruit that he was trying to convince Eve to eat of is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And eating this fruit makes man like God, so says the serpents. Like God having the knowledge of good and evil. So what does that mean? It means that before that fruit was eaten, mankind was in almost like an animal-like state where we don't even know right and wrong. We don't have the ability to choose wrong. Although it's a paradox, because when she chose to eat the fruit, that was a sin, but let's not say that side. You can read the Garden of Eden this way. Jehovah is trying to keep man in an ignorant state where he can't tell right from wrong. Along comes the snake saying, actually, you can elevate your consciousness and become like God and know right from wrong and make those choices yourself. And so the Cathars actually look at Jehovah as a demiurge and being an evil deity who's trying to keep man sort of imprisoned in a lower state of awareness. So that's, that's just a completely opposite way to read it. But George is playing with this a lot in the whole fire of the gods concept with Lightbringer and the weirwood paste. Anything where man can become like God and elevate his consciousness, he's touching on those Garden of Eden themes. I've actually written about that a lot. It's oh, one of my favorite topics. Thank so that's you. a great question. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> There's also the um, he d he does it with the imagery um, in his in his works and the image of Danny birthing her dragons when she stands and she's holding the dragons um, that is um, almost a mirror of the birth of Venus famous painting and the birth of Venus itself was inspired by a painting of Christ being reborn after he he was baptized and both yeah. Venus and Christ are. Well, Christ is a morning star deity, and yeah. so his symbolism is actually based on Venus, just as Aphrodite is. Yeah. Oh yes, and even da Daenerys like suckling those dragons is kind of even like a could be like a Marian image if you wanted to imagine it that. So way. there's a so scene. Really I'll get you in a second. So and there's a scene where Daenerys is um, waiting for Dario to come back after she sent him away in the ADWD, and she turns to her handmaid. And she's like, "I must be beautiful. I must 
And she's like, I, you know, and she, they ask her, what do you want to wear? And she's like, starlight and sea foam. And that's a direct Aphrodite foam-born reference. Uh, a star falling into the sea, so it's, it's good stuff. You in the back had a question? It's not an original idea. I watch a lot of YouTube channels. Hey, both of you guys. Hi. <laughs> um, I thought Daenerys was, was uh, a representation of the Book of Revelation. Yes, I have. Uh, Revelation is actually, sounds like one of my podcasts, if you go back and read it. It's all about falling stars and, and basically celestial calamities, uh, you know, in, in terms of symbolism. I mean, it's really intense. I got into that a little bit on one of my essays, and uh, I do, I was talking about Daenerys yesterday as like a kind of a cleansing fire. It's going to burn away all the rot and sort of maybe prepare the way for the next spring. And she's definitely kind of, a little something a little apocalyptic about her, for sure. Yes, I think it was. So, next thing I want to move on to is something called the unreliable narrator, and it sort of couples with the what's called third-person limited perspective. So, the unreliable narrator, most of you probably know, but let's just say it. Basically, it means that you don't know if what you're reading is true. There will never be, the author will never step out and say, and little did he know that was the last time he would ever see Jon Snow. You don't get those. Like, you get characters believing lies about themselves, and George is inviting you to take that journey with them and believe the lie or not. And the third person limited is basically, so the third person limited means that he doesn't step out and do the narrator's voice. The only time he does it is with Victorian when his hand burns. Uh, yeah, I think so. And, and it's just like kind of real quick, there's a specific reason because we can't be in the room or whatever, but apart... It might happen in the prologue, like briefly. They switch between uh, POVs pretty quick in that one. Do they? Yeah. Oh, I hadn't caught that. Yeah. So in any case, uh, by doing this, he's forcing you to ride shotgun in the brains of people who are all self-deluded in various ways, as we all kind of are, you know? I mean, growing up and maturing is a process of ridding yourself of your delusions, so. We've got, um, we've got examples like, uh, okay, so as far as setting, I talked about setting a trap, as far as like, will you buy into these characters' illusions? So think about Robert. The, one of the first lies we're given is that is the whole cause of the war, and, and Robert and Leanna loved each other, and Rhaegar stole her away, and we eventually find out that Robert is basically entirely self-deceived about this. But we don't know that at first. We're just getting Robert talking to Ned, and Ned's kind of listening to him going, okay, okay. There's a little bit of a hint that maybe they're not on the same page, but it's not until later that we find out that Robert's self-deluded. Yeah, there's a line where Ned says basically to Robert, no, her place is in the crypts. Yeah. And that's, that's a very strong pushback for him again. It's Robert being like, you didn't know her. Like, she was a Stark. She wasn't Robert's woman. She was a woman of the North. Absolutely. And then, uh, or think about characters like Theon, Cersei, or Victarion. Okay, so these are all, all self-deluded characters pretty badly. Um, but you have to, you can, there's always a little kernel of, of truth or motivation in there. And so it's, it's fun to take the ride. Now, those three are, are more obvious. Like, when you read Victarion, it's pretty obvious, like, who this guy is. This is a, a violent meathead. Right, so, but then you have characters like, uh, you know, uh, Quentin and Ned, all right? Now, these are people that have a noble self-delusion, where they're a little bit ignorant about how the world is, and their, their sense of honor is, is just a little bit, you know, naive at times. Or you have Jon Snow. He's a little bit, I mean, he's young, so maybe it's more immaturity as opposed to self-delusion, but he thinks that he's going to be able to let the wildlings through the wall and then lead an army on Winterfell and that that's going to be fine. And it wasn't fine. So as much as I think John is a good leader in developing leadership skills, like he made some clear mistakes at the wall on A Dance with Dragons that led to his murder. And what George is doing is, until that murder happens, he's inviting you to catch those mistakes or not. Like, we want to root for John, but we're supposed to be reading with a critical eye and going, why is he sending all his friends away? Yeah. That doesn't sound smart. One of my favorite ones for that is actually uh, Tyrion as an unreliable narrator. He's, he's introduced as probably the most intelligent character in the story, so you're supposed to believe what he says a lot, but then he starts blaming everything in King's Landing on Cersei when most of it's not. And then the things he thinks about Shay and the relationship, there's a lot of self-delusion going there, but George very cleverly plays with it by making him so smart at first. Well, he's probably right, isn't he? And as everything in King's Landing falls around around him, you're like, no, Tyrion could be very, very, very wrong, even though he's book smart. 
And that has to be that way because if you create a character in your books that just knows everything and is always right, that's not interesting. Yeah. So, you know, and nobody's like that. There's nobody, even the smartest friend you know, makes a mistake sometime or did in the past, you know, so there's, nobody's perfect. It kind of works both ways though sometimes. Like Cersei, um, her point of view chapters are a really good example of this. She is clearly utterly self-deluded and, and she talks to herself and she's, it's almost like she's convincing herself, you know. She's talking herself around half the time and until she um, says it in her mind so much that she then genuinely believes it and then she will act upon this new belief that she's forced herself. But in her internal thoughts, um, especially when it comes to crimes that people um, suspected her of in the first book, mm. for example, many, many crimes that she didn't, and, then, and as readers, well, maybe she did, you know, that this guy believes she did and probably was her, and then we find out three, four books later, no, she had nothing to do with it, because she's thinking, and Martin also gives us those moments like where Ned and Cat are in, or Ned and Cersei are in the garden and Ned's confronting Cersei and be like, take your kids and leave. And Cersei's like, starts talking about, you know, what would you do for your kids? Yeah. And Catelyn also follows up on that, you know, what, would I kill another child or save my children? Like, there's, George is always giving you a rationale, even for the most self-deluded characters. Like, Ares was paranoid, but people were plotting against him. Yeah, they were the trying to kill him. You only paranoid if you're wrong. Right. Yeah. You're cautious if you're right. <laughs> oh, and uh, he also does this in reverse. Like, we've talked a lot about the characters who think more of themselves than they really are, but Sam is a great example of a character who thinks much less of himself than he really is. Like, mm -hmm. if you read his point of view, you know, he's constantly talking himself down internally and uh, externally. But Sam has already accomplished incredible things. In I think story. Sansa is another person like yes. that, yeah. too. Yeah, it's very self-deprecating, and then... Uh, but you can see that their actions don't line up with their self-perception. That's a great point. Thanks for raising that. I think one of my favorite examples of reliable narrators quickly is um, with the the twin chapters of John and Samwell when he's sending when he's sending away um, Aemon and Sam and a monster, and how each of them thinks what the other one is thinking. The, the actions in between is exactly the same. That's he, he uses it in a really clever way. It gives you a lot of uh, reread ability because you can go back and compare how each character's interpretations might be wildly off, even though the actual things that are happening, happening are exactly the same. It is a great example. So then, now the, the thing is, if I could go back and sort of talk about why this is important, what this does is it engages the reader. When the, when the author spoon feeds the conclusions to the reader, it makes it like you're watching television. You're just sort of sitting back, it's all coming at you. But when you have to figure things out, it makes you get into the books, and it makes you engage with what's going on, and that is what you want to do as a writer. So the answer is, uh, half, probably third to a half of you are writers, I know everybody here is a writer, I mean, a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people in the fandom are aspiring writers, and this is a, just a super important lesson, I feel like. Make the reader figure things out, treat your readers like adults, they're smart, don't give them, you know, don't give them all the pieces of the puzzle, because this is what leaves room for debate. That's why we're all here, you know, creating different theories and having debates and having different opinions. If you spell it all out, this all disappears. So, really, really important. And a compliment to that idea is the idea of not turning the amps to 11. They do go to 11, but you don't have to turn them to 11. Okay, so... Let's think about, uh, yeah, actually, go ahead, you can interrupt me, go ahead. Um, Joe had a video yesterday about um, Daenerys and an unreliable, yep. unreliable narrative, the, the lemon tree and the red door. Yeah. Would you say that's an unreliable narrative or a red herring? Uh, part of it is an unreliable narrator because part of Danny's past is that she's moved so much. When you're that young, when that was happening to her, it's very easy to mix up memories. It's it's just a psychological fact that a lot of your memories from your childhood are not like real. They're more constructed in that way. So while Danny, what she remembers as the house with the red door in Bravos, all the details might not be the same, but she probably did experience all those things at one time. But he's not telling you that. You have to know that on your own to come into that and look at the facts of it. And then he gives you more details where he's telling you from like the Lannister Guardsmen and Sharna and from uh, where actually Bravos is. You can figure out for yourself what actually happened, but it's hard to rely on Danny and a lot of the characters in that way. Good point, and good question. No. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so as like content creators, as you guys are, and like, I'm sure all a lot of us in this room are content creators and super fans. How do you feel like 
George's elevated writing style and putting all these things in there and leaving us all those clues. How do you feel like that influences the way you digest other media, like in a similar genre? Because well, ruined everything. I know. <laughs> Everything's I think a letdown. She was going with that. Yeah, I, I will throw out a quick recommendation for Dark on Netflix. That is one of the recent TV shows that I feel like had depth. I rewatched it twice. Uh, Amethyst Koala watched it like three or four times. It's really good, but there's yeah, it's ruined a lot. <laughs> and, and specifically, anybody that writes books where they have that heavy-handed narrative style, it's like I'm not 13. Yeah. Yes. You know? Yeah. It's um. Do we all feel utterly desensitized to so much now? Yeah. And and I I you please don't lynch me, but I've never read Harry Potter. Have <laughs> 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 Because. Because I tried, because I read um, The Song of Ice and Fire many years ago, years before the show. Um, so by the time Harry Potter became a, on my spectrum, I was heavy, hard fantasy. And I was about five pages in, I thought, oh, this is a nice kid's book. I mean, it is. Sorry. Maybe I'll, I'll give it a try. Uh, for me, Song of Ice and Fire got me much more into Lord of the Rings than I was before. I tried it when I was in uh, middle school, and it was so boring and just so much just landscape porn and talking about hobbits. I didn't get through it. But after you look back, better than hobbit porn. And then you look back and you see the connections after I read a Song of Ice and Fire. It's like, oh, the Witcher King and Rob, and I love especially the um, the Ents and the Hoorns and their connections to the Weirwoods and the Greenseers. I made a very long video about that. But that got me to read Children of Hoorn, <laughs> written by Chris Tolkien, and I never would have read that if I hadn't started with the Song of Ice and Fire, just because I wanted to know more about where George was coming from. Uh, the Weirwood tree in the third oh, row. Yes. Um, for me, what makes the Song of Ice and Fire so special are the dynamic and super complex character conflicts that it's, it's so rare to see in other works where Man, you, this character has these conflicts, you know, Theon wants to be loyal to the Starks, he also wants to be loyal to the Greyjoys, and, and you can feel compassion for that. It's like, no, you gotta do this, or no, you gotta do that. Uh, you can see both sides of it, and that's just really compelling, and we can relate to it because we have those conflicts. And not only that, but the character conflicts that George R. R. Martin um, writes, like, they really underscore the greater societal conflicts and those thematic conflicts that are um, overarching in the story and just He's putting very... it out there, it's very Shakespearean. I talk a lot about Shakespeare and I did a Shakespeare panel this weekend. <laughs> oh, you're Shakespeare of Thrones, right? Yeah, yeah. I am Shakespeare okay. of Thrones. Okay, right there. So, Quick shout out. Yes. The weirwood. Yes, I didn't want you guys to leave here without saying it. So that, <laughs> and by the way, if you guys, you don't, it can't just be questions. If you have your own favorite thing that sort of fits in with what we're talking about, then by by all means, we're we're here to to oh, now the hand shoot up. <laughs> Asking for trouble. Yeah, go ahead. Going back to the unreliable narrative, one of the very best examples of that is Cersei with the blue bar and like watching someone delude themselves yeah. and believing the blue bar is guilty, and it's so cool to be in her head there and be like, wow, like. Does she really believe that this guy did it? She seems to believe along the way until she, at the end, she kind of realizes that it's all bullshit. So it's just one of the, I love that scene. So well. That is actually one of the best examples. That's really good. And to go back to what you were saying, um, I think that George is really good at doing double duty. So when he's developing a personal character conflict, he's also showing you a lot about the world. When he's doing world building, he's telling you something you need to know for the story. Like, for example, the legend of Durin God's Grief and Storm's End is completely fantastical. It's a great myth. It's, I mean, it's just utterly fantastical. Stealing a goddess from the sky and the storms come and knock down seven castles. So I built the fourth one, that fell over, burned down, and then the second one. He's seven castles deep. The thing is that Catelyn remembers this story when she's on the way to talk to Renly and Stannis. And so what this is actually doing is setting up the Baratheons as stubborn-ass mofos who don't give in to anything. And so this, this, this world-building mythology is actually giving us the character of Robert and Renly and previewing the theme of the chapter and the conflict. So there's a lot going on. He never does one thing at a time. So, uh, so what ruined me uh, reading this on my fire to reading other books? And so I first read through, I read like I had read other books. And what I realized when you talk about 
turn the volume. You don't need to turn the volume up to it. I mean, you can make the freight pies. First time I read through, I didn't get the freight pies. And then after what I read the second time, then I realized you can parse every word. Yes. Every word is put in there. If he mentions something, that that is not just an aside. It, it's going to play into something. And you've got to figure it out. Yeah, he uses so keywords a lot. Yeah. And it's, and freight pie is just way cooler because it's like kind of under the surface. If it was Wyman Mandrake dancing around, I ate the They'd be like, what is this? Oh, here's a slice of but, this, but once you realize that freight pie is a thing and you go back and read that scene where Wyman's gobbling up and is like, pile. I mean, it's the song of the singers, the rat cook, the third time. Let's go, man. I mean, dude, it is one of the most visceral, like, oh my god, macabre, but you're. And Martin has managed to make you root for the guy yeah. eating the people. We're happy about cannibalism. What's happening to us? Let's just turn to that's it. Shut it down. Drop the mic. So, lycoon, or excuse me, the racket is, is actually um, a nod to the feast of lycoon. Speak up a little bit. So, the racket is actually a nod to the feast of lycoon in um, Greek mythology. If you take a look at um, the story of the rat cook, the rat cook um, kind of tricks this dude into eating his own son, right? And um, and it was just a, an abomination on a, on a couple levels. Um, but the, he was eventually punished and turned into a rat for trying to feed that person um, uh, his own son. If you look at the tale of Feast of Lycoon, um, Lycoon actually invites these people over for a feast, and it was actually Zeus that he invited over. And he tried to trick Zeus into eating his son. And he actually cooked him and tried to do that. And Zeus knew a little bit better. But in response, he turned him into a wolf. And that's the story of the very first werewolf. And of course, the Starks are all, you know, kind of analogs, you know, to dwarves and werewolves and stuff like that. So that's the story of the first werewolf. This the thing is, these references, and, and, and this is what you Thanks. said as well, that the, um, some of them, you have to read every word, and some of them carry such weight, and they're setting up, they're foreshadowing, they are huge, momentous, you go back and go, it was all there. <laughs> and then others are just really fun, just really light-hearted, fun nods, um, speaking of Harry Potter. Um, Harry Sawyer and Robin Potter are both characters in yeah. The Song of Ice and Fire. They're both mock suitors. They, they basically um, take the mickey out of Brienne of Tarth. They pretend that they, they want to be with their suitors. So she gives Potter a nasty scar on his forehead. <laughs> you know, so you've got this heavy fray pie thing going on. And then you've got this character called... Harry. And and it's all it's all just context. Like yeah. when you know about the feast of is it Lycan? I, I, I say Lycan, but I, like I think could be could be off. So like you can enjoy the story without knowing that. Exactly. But if you learn that, then it just makes it a little more like oh this is it's more context for this. The rat cook doesn't exist in a void anymore. So I just wanted to build up what you said. How you were like rooting for Mandalay as he was eating the phrase. George does that a lot. That's part of the great thing. Like. Morally, you know it's wrong, but in the context, you're so happy. Like when Joffrey, this 14-year-old, is clawing at his throat, you're like, yeah. yeah. Oh, he's turned us into cannibals. We're all people that are like, yeah, well, you do have to sometimes stab your wife in order to make life ringer. I mean, you know, that's a good so, yeah, no. so George, George is playing tricks on us and also setting traps. He's like, can I get my readers to cheer for cannibalism? Can I get my readers to, or at least, you know, wonder about this? So yeah, this is this is his cool. Can you cheer for right. Rob Stark going? Uh, in, uh, you in the back, yeah. Uh, um, one of my favorite things uh, with George Martin is his redemption arcs. Uh, my two favorite ones are Jamie Lannister. I love his. I, I loved uh, Feast for Crows. And um, the little bits that he had in uh, the Dance of Dragons, and um, I also love Theon's. I know a lot of people are, you know, one side or the other with Theon, but I love going back and seeing how he was. It, you know, when he first goes back to the Iron Isles, and you know, he's real cocky and arrogant, and he's been raised by Starks, and then you know, he kind of gets slapped in the face by his family, and then you know, everything happens with Ramsay, and you see him transform, and you know, I 
I think George hates quarterbacks. Like, I think in like in high school, I, I think the football players rubbed him the wrong way because we see all these like alpha male, you know, like preening, like 17 year old dudes, they all die. Wait, Jamie, the initial, oh, the initial pitch letter, Jamie um, ended up becoming king. He got everything he wanted. But he ended up changing that to a redemption arc and made him a, a much better character than just the jock jerk that he initially wanted. Well, so that's what he's doing, man. He's, he's essentially showing the process of a young man losing their young man delusions. And so John does, you know, Rob dies, Theon dies, Joffrey dies. Um, poor Quentin, I guess it's not quite the same story. Because he's not, oh, I guess, no, he was the firstborn. He doesn't fit that sort of entitlement role quite as much, but the point is like, George loves taking people down a peg, but it's not just a matter of taking people down a peg, it's like, now we can do something useful. Because that's how all of our lives go. It's like, you really start learning when your lives fall apart, and you experience disaster, and that's when you start like getting tough and getting resilience and stuff. So this is how George is molding these people into interesting characters. Uh, in the blue. That's exactly right, I think, what you're saying. And one of the things that, that I love so much about what George has has done for me in my own life is that if nothing is black and white and nothing is is simple and um, I tend to simplify things sometimes you know what I mean and he's not like that nobody is all good or or, or, or all evil you know like we retold them out. and you but Davos is a bad husband <laughs> yeah, he's, Davis, yeah. Yeah, you see on his wife, that's bad. Yeah, he wrote much more bore mirrors than fair mirrors, I would say. <laughs> yeah. That's that's a great point. You know, I mean, there's there's so much nuance, and I think that that's helped me in my own life to be like, that's just not how life is. You know, as somebody who tends to simplify everything, as someone who tends to see everything in black and white with no gray, I just the books themselves have really changed that. And I that. That's I cool. That. I had a little bit of a similar experience with, you know, I had a heavy religious upbringing, and they did the typical, like, you know, swing the other way. I hate organized religion, you know, and then I sort of come back to the middle. It's like, oh, well, actually, there's a lot to be said for philosophy and religious thought. You just can't take it quite so literally and come back to the middle. And I feel like uh, some of the exploration that I was talking about related to the Garden of Eden and some of that stuff has helped me uh, sort of work through various lingering demons of uh, my childhood. So... Uh, in uh, the black shirt, yeah. Um, number one, I also like the. So cool. <laughs> number two, like uh, the unreliable narrator. I feel like Catelyn is like the worst. And then I have one question, really quick. So, what do you guys read now when you're done? <laughs> um, I'm reading George R. R. Martin's dream songs right now. <laughs> short stories from earlier in his life. I was like Joe. I had to after I read Game of Thrones. I literally it took me three years to get into it. I had the books. I tried. You know, I would get eighty pages in and be like, I can't do this. And then three years, literally, of doing that, I finally read them all in like two weeks. And like you, I I, I had to read something else, and it had to be that same genre. And I went straight to The Hobbit, read it in a day, read all the Lord of the Rings, and now I'm just like, what now? Because I, I can't get into Harry Potter either. <laughs> so it's like. Stop, just me then. Yeah. So I like I like Pat Rothfuss. I like um, yes. he's really good. Yes. And uh, yeah, it's a kind of an easy one. And there's uh, uh, the Lies of Locke Lamora. Who's that author? Scott. Something. He's really good. I like him. Uh, I'm reading Zachariah Sitchin at the moment, which is not well, it is fiction, but it's, <laughs> it's presented as not non-fiction. Scott Lynch. Uh, Scott Lynch, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, Scott Lynch. Um, it is nearly time. Who's good friends with George Martin? Just before we do finish off, I'd just like to mention it's my birthday. Happy birthday! Happy birthday! Three, two, one. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Gemma. Happy birthday to you. Congratulated on my birthday, and I thought, wow, I, I am officially old. <laughs> <laughs> you made it this far. <laughs> I actually, I actually want to close with one last thing that I didn't get into. That's really important to me. It's called "In Late, Out Early," and it's coupled with lots of flashbacks. So this is what happens. Martin starts a scene right in the middle of the scene. So take the one where uh, Ned Stark fights Jamie Lannister in the streets of King's Landing. The scene in the book begins with Ned walking through the rainy streets about to get into the fight. 
But as he's walking through the rainy streets, he remembers back to the brothel he was just at, and how he was talking to Barry's mother, and this whole confrontation with Peter Baelish. This is all happening in flashback as Ned's walking down the street. Then the fight with Jamie happens. So the whole scene actually takes place in one physical location, but we've got three different sort of stories happening. And Martin does this in almost every chapter. He never starts at the beginning. He always drops you right in. It's much more exciting that way. Then you're trying to figure out what's going on, what happened to the character the last two weeks that you didn't hear about, and it's all told in flashback. And by cutting up the timing like that, he can then superimpose themes uh, that run through the chapter. So for example, he can use a flashback to call out an idea that he needs in the current scene that wouldn't belong there otherwise. And so it's a, it's a great tool. It makes everything highly readable. Everybody who's an author should use Inlaid Out Early. It's just, I mean, it's, it's kind of actually basics for literature, but it's just, Martin does it so well. And, and it, it takes you all over the place, doesn't it? Because like Tyrion will be walking from one location to another, and we know what happened yesterday. We know the conversation that he had that morning. We know the anticipation of the conversation he's about to have and how he feels about that. And then he'll cut back to when he was 10 years old and he was reading a particular book and then something happens and, he's, and, it, and you're all over the place and you've, he's maybe walked 200 yards. That's right. And it's, it's a great technique to use. And uh, the other one is that he creates a lot of chapter parallels. When you have like 46 POVs or whatever, you have to create a lot of internal cohesion in the story. So you have all these characters that you can compare, like Daenerys and Cersei as ruling queens in the last three books. You can compare uh, John and Danny as chosen ones, or Bran and Danny as people going on these sort of solo missions. It just, it's endless. And there's a scene specifically, like the Danny uh, scene in the tent, uh, Shadows with Miriam at door is in many ways a flip of the Tower of Joy scene uh, in, in symbolic language. And so by doing that, it makes the, the book rhyme and have cohesion, whereas otherwise it would just be going sideways with all this many characters. So I feel like that's been a really crucial tool for him to be able to handle that many movies. But. Yeah, we could talk about this all day, and I think we will. Right, on this, so and that's kind of what we're doing at this time. So thanks for coming, everyone. Thank you. People troll George online, please. If you see him, block him or scold him or something.